This morning we'll be looking at the 18th chapter of John's Gospel, John chapter 18, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 28 through 40. Please give your attention to God's Word. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. What is the best kind of government? We're talking about civil government. What's the best kind of civil government? Well, back in the days of Samuel, the people of Israel were governed by judges. And judges were kind of a unique form of government. Basically, Israel were led and and guided by their patriarchs, their family households, their tribal leaders, except for when they would, because of their sin, they would come under the oppression. God would allow their enemies to oppress them and to cause them great suffering. And what God would do at a time like that is that he would raise up a deliverer, someone like a judge. They never knew when a judge would be raised up. They never knew when one was coming, but there were always in a nick of time God would raise up a judge who would come and deliver them from their enemies. And that was really the form of government they knew. But the people began to notice that their neighboring nations with more organization and more stable leadership were prospering. And so they realized, you know what we really need? We need a king just like our neighbors so that we can become stronger and more prosperous. And so they went to Samuel near the end of Samuel's life and they said to him, Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And go on later to say, So that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. 
Well, if you remember the story, Samuel was angry at their request, but God spoke to Samuel and said to him, They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Well, God gave them what they asked for. These people that wanted a king like all the other nations, they asked for a king like all the other nations, and guess what? They got a king by God's decree, like those kings of all the other nations, Saul. Saul, who was a very worldly king, prideful, greedy, power mad, just like all the kings of the other nations. And Israel suffered for it. Later, God would raise up his king. A king not like all the kings of the other nations, but a king like himself. David, a man after God's own heart. Well, ever since then, just thinking about world history and world governments, monarchy, some form of a king or an emperor, a similar sort of an office, that's really been the dominant form of government in world history. But when you think of world history, kings don't have a very good reputation. Matter of fact, especially in our country, we tend to despise the concept of a king. But that's really because of the kind of kings we had. I mean, good kings, when you look at history in general, good kings are very rare in the annals of history. And that's because we, as human beings, are fallen. We are sinful. We are prideful. We are greedy. We are selfish. And as the old adage says, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so that's what tends to happen. You put sinners like you and me in positions of great authority... We tend to try to use that authority for selfish purposes, and it ends up being destructive. And that's what we've seen, really, in the history of mankind. We've talked in the last couple of centuries, it really is kind of a recent innovation when you think of world history, that we've tried democracy. And democracy has, so far, turned out to be more effective than the monarchies or versions of monarchy that we've known in the history of the last couple hundred years. And that's primarily because, mon- or because democracy was designed by people with a biblical worldview. People who knew the nature of fallen man. And they designed a government with lots of checks and balances to restrain and, and, and to limit the amount of damage that the sinful natures, the, that, that the leaders, the rulers would have. But having said that, don't come to the wrong conclusion that democracy is the best form of government. I know that may not be popular to say here in America, but democracy is not the best form of government. The ideal form of government is the one that God designed, and that is a monarchy. So I do believe that a monarchy is the best form of government. I do believe that. I mean, just think about it. If you were were an auto designer, if you were to design automobiles, and you were to come up with a design, and you were to turn it over to the testers to test that automobile, and they kept coming back to you with reports that that car kept crashing, well, you might look at your design, you might question your design, but if you really decided that you're nothing nothing wrong with your design, you'd come to the conclusion there's something wrong with the driver. And that's really the problem with monarchy. The problem with monarchy is not the design, it's those who drive it, those who rule in the name of monarchy. But think about it. Wouldn't it be true that there would be no better form of government, 
no more efficient form of government, no more protective form of government, no, no form of government that would give us greater prosperity than if we could have a perfect king. A king who is all-wise, a king who is all-powerful, a king who is all-knowing, a king who is humble and meek, a king who is kind, a king who is gentle, a king who shepherds his people like a shepherd shepherds his flock. A perfect king in a perfect kingdom would be the best form of government. Well, that's the kind of king that we encounter in John chapter 18. And it's a fascinating encounter because you have this perfect king, this king without sin, this humble, gentle, yet powerful and all-knowing shepherd is standing before the powers and authorities of this earth. And he's being tried before them. And in their eyes, his life, his existence, his power rests in the balance of their decision. That's how they see it. And history repeats itself. Just like in the days of Samuel, God could say, they have rejected me from being king over them. We saw last week as we were coming into the the last hours of Jesus' earthly ministry that Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was taken, and as I said last week, there were two stages to his trial. There was the Jewish part of the trial, working through the Jewish legal system and the courts. And then you had the Roman part of the trial, where they had to go before Pilate, who represented the, the authority of the emperor and the Roman Empire. Well, in last week, we looked at the Jewish part of the trial, and John doesn't tell us much about that part of the trial. It's actually kind of fascinating. John actually assumes that, because he wrote the last gospel, he's assuming that his readers know the accounts, the historical accounts from the other three gospels. And so he doesn't retell the story, particularly of the Jewish trial. Matter of fact, he talks about a part of the Jewish trial that the other gospel writers left out, which is that Jesus actually first appeared before Annas, the former high priest, for a pre-trial hearing, and then he was taken to Caiaphas, the current high priest, to go through, and before the whole Sanhedrin, to go through the formal Jewish trial. And that has already been completed. John doesn't tell us about that trial, but he, he just mentions it in passing. And then in chapter 18, he moves on to the Roman part of the trial. But what we know from the other gospel writers is that when Jesus appeared before the Sanhedrin and was tried before them, they brought false witnesses against him and all kinds of false accusations. And ultimately, because he claimed to be the Messianic king, according to Daniel's prophecy, they accused him and convicted him of blasphemy. And so that's really the the, the verdict Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. And so that's, how, that's already happened when we come here to John chapter 18, and now he's turned over to Pilate. Now, why did they have to go to Pilate? Well, the, the text here tells us right at the beginning, because the Jews did not have the authority to execute anyone. And so they had, if they wanted to execute somebody, if somebody was guilty of a capital offense under Jewish law, they had to turn them over to the Romans because the Romans reserved that power and authority of execution capital punishment to themselves and so that's where we're at at this point in the trial and so they come before Pontius Pilate and as the chapter begins you have this delegation from the Sanhedrin 
carrying this verdict of guilty and this prisoner, Jesus, and they lead him to the private residence of Pilate. Pilate was, his, his actual technical term was prefect. He was a Roman prefect. The interesting thing about who Pilate was, why he was there, is because he was a military person. He was a military leader. And prefects over that part, in that part of the world, the reason that you had a military leader governing that, that part of southern Palestine, the region that he was responsible for, is because that region was known for uprisings. It was known for being a place where there was turmoil in the culture and the people were not very uh, compliant, not very submissive to Roman rule. And so that's why Pilate was there. And the reason he was in Jerusalem, that wasn't his normal residence. He normally lived in Caesarea. But he came to Jerusalem, and I'm sure he did this during every feast, because, as we said last week, hundreds of thousands of Jews who hate the Romans had come to Jerusalem. And so you can imagine it's kind of a political, social powder keg there in Jerusalem. And so Pilate's there, and we saw last week he's there with hundreds upon hundreds of soldiers to keep things in order, to keep the uprisings from happening. One writer I read this week described Pilate's character in this way, said Pilate was a morally weak and vacillating man who tried to hide his flaws under shows of stubbornness and brutality. I think basically you could probably apply that same sentence to most leaders in world history. As we said, this is what happens when you put people in positions of power. Pilate, we talked about how the Jews hated Pilate and the Roman authorities. And Pilate, if you read the secular histories we have about Pilate, he actually did some things to kind of thumb his nose at the Jewish people. And they had some particular reasons for disliking Pilate. But Pilate hated the Jews, too. And you can sense it. As you read the first few verses of this chapter, don't you pick up on that tension? They really, really hated each other. Pilate and the Jews, the Jews and Pilate. Pilate hated them because of the uprisings, because they made his rule tenuous, because they are always getting him in trouble, because they was all, they were always creating all these uh, fires for him to put out, but also because of their weird, to his Roman mind, their weird customs and traditions and religious views. And you see it come to play here at the beginning of chapter 18 where it says that Pilate has to come out of his residence to meet the Jewish leadership because they, according to their religious convictions, could not enter into his residence lest they, because it's a Gentile residence, lest they become ceremonially unclean or defiled and therefore unable to celebrate the rest of the Passover. Well, you can imagine how Pilate felt about that, having to come out of his residence to meet these Jewish leaders so that they wouldn't be defiled by his residence. As you think about that, though, Jesus had said of these same Jewish leaders earlier, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. What a, the epitome of an example of that, where you have these Jewish leaders not wanting to step inside a Gentile house lest they be contaminated so that they can't celebrate the Passover, yet they're in the process of manipulating the legal system, twisting the law so that they can put the Messiah to death. The, past, the one who Paul later would say, he is our Passover. 
He is the fulfillment of everything the Passover represented. And they're trying to put him to death. They're trying to put him on a cross. And they're concerned about getting their feet dirty with Gentile dust. Well, Pilate does something that surprises the Jewish leadership at this point. I think, and I don't, it's not original thought to me, a lot of commentators think, that they really were hoping that Pilate would just say, when they came to Pilate, said, hey, here, we need this, we found this guy guilty, we need you to put him to death. They were hoping that he would just rubber stamp their verdict. And there's a good reason why they hoped that, because they knew that their verdict, the reason, the charges that they really found him guilty of, wouldn't impress Pilate at all. They, they said he was guilty of blasphemy because he identified himself with the, the messianic uh, ruler of Daniel chapter 7. That's what they, that was the verdict. And they, they knew that Pilate would dismiss that, say, oh, that's some theological dispute among you Jews. I, that's, you know, I'm not interested in your intramural debates. Keep that, you know, take, deal with that yourself. And so this is, that's why they give the answer they give. They say, if he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't be here, basically. They're angry. Again, they, they despise Pilate, but they don't want to give the real excuse. Well, they do because Pilate, what he says here is, tell me what the charges are. What have you charged him with? And what that indicates to them is that Pilate intends to do his own hearing. He, he, he's going to redo the trial to make sure that Jesus is guilty of what they said he's guilty of. And they hadn't anticipated that. And so Luke actually tells us, the gospel writer Luke tells us, that they actually did lay charges. Now, we don't know if they actually had these charges or they made them up on the spot, but they've actually accused Jesus of claiming to be a king. And so you knew, they knew, that that would get Pilate's ear. Ah, okay, now we have a revolutionary here. We have a rebellious rebel leader who's trying to you know, lead a movement against the Roman Empire. And so that's why, as the trial moves forward, Pilate says, okay, bring him in. And they take Jesus into his private residence. And Pilate begins to question him. And I want us to listen carefully to this dialogue between Pilate and Jesus. Because as you listen carefully to what Jesus says, he reveals an awful lot about who he is, what his purpose is, and what he came to do. First of all, Pilate zeroes in on this idea that he claimed to be a king. And so the first question is, what kind of king is Jesus? What kind of king is he? Verse 33, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And did you notice that Jesus doesn't give a simple answer? He doesn't say yes or no. And there's good reason why he didn't, because the word king is a loaded term. It's still a loaded term, but especially in Jerusalem in the first century under Roman rule, to claim to be a king was a very dangerous and powerful thing. And so Jesus needs to make sure that he's actually defining terms here. He wants Pilate to think about what does he mean by the word king. We have to deal with that in our own situation. When somebody asks you about yourself, somebody says to me, are you a pastor? I'll probably say yes, but I'll also want to know what do you think a pastor is so that you don't get a wrong idea when I say I'm a pastor. If I say I'm a Presbyterian, I'll want to ask you, well, you know, okay, I'm a Presbyterian, but what do you understand a Presbyterian to be? Because you may misunderstand or we may not be meaning the same thing by the same term. Even if I say I'm a Christian, I'll want to know what you think the word Christian means so that when I say, yes, I'm a Christian, you're actually understanding me. And so that's what Jesus is doing with Pilate here. 
Am I a king? Well, let's talk about that word king for a minute. It's really what he's saying. He says, you know, to quote him directly, he says, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? In other words, I think what he's saying here is, Pilate, are you asking me, am I a king according to your understanding as a Roman general or a Roman Roman uh, uh, governor? Is that the basis on which you're asking the question? Or are you repeating the charge that the Jews brought? And so you're asking, are you the Sanhedrin's understanding of king? Or, I think implied, is do you want me to talk with you about how God defines my role as king? Is it what the Romans mean? Is it what the Jews mean? Or is it what God intends it to mean? You know, I'm sure Jesus said, oh, you want to you talk about what God intends by the term king? Well, let me talk to you about some Old Testament prophecies here. Let me talk to you about what the Messiah really is. And if at the end of that explanation, he would say, yes, I am that king. But for him to say, yes, I'm a king, based on Pilate's understanding or the Jewish understanding, would have been wrong. Remember when the Israelites asked Samuel for a king like the nations? Now, again, see how they're defining what a king was. They wanted a king according to the design of the nations. Remember what God said to them after that? He said, you know, you've rejected me as king. I'm going to give you what you're asking for, but here's what to expect. I'm going to, it's kind of a lengthy passage, but I'll read it to you. This is what God says. If you want a king like the kingdoms of this world, if that's the kind of king you want, here's what to expect. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and all of our orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. You see, that's the kind of king that comes for the kingdoms of this world. That is the world's kind of king, a king who is selfish and self-exalting and self-serving. And that's the kind of kings that Israel got, typically. But the Messiah, God's king, that was prophesied in the Old Testament was to be a righteous and kind and gentle and merciful shepherd. And so Jesus says to Pilate, what kind of a king are you asking about? What do you mean by king? But you notice Pilate has no interest in entering into that discussion whatsoever. He says with disgust, am I a Jew? He has no interest in Jewish ideas about kingship. And he sees no relevance to his job or his life. So that leads to the second part of the discussion where Jesus moves into what kind of kingdom does he rule? First of all, what kind of king is he? But secondly, what kind of a kingdom does he reign over? Do you notice in verse 36, he indirectly affirms that he is a king because he describes his reign. What kind of, you know, he says, here's what my kingdom is like. So he's obviously implying I am a king and here's what my kingdom looks like. 
But he says, he says the same thing twice at the beginning and the end. He says, first of all, my kingdom is not of this world. And then at the end, he says, my kingdom is not from this world. His kingdom is of an entirely different nature than the kingdoms of this world. It has an entirely different source than the kingdoms of this world. It has an entirely different purpose than the kingdoms of this world. His kingdom doesn't have royal palaces or capital buildings or currencies or militaries or geographical boundaries. And it is not sustained by the power of the sword, by external coercion. And that's not to say that his kingdom is only spiritual and not physical. But it is first and foremost spiritual. And it is a kingdom that changes physical reality because it first of all changes spiritual reality. The kingdom of God was a central message in Jesus' teachings. How many times did Jesus start a teaching by saying the kingdom of God is like this? It was a central theme, especially in Matthew's gospel. It was a central theme to his teaching. He did come to establish the kingdom of God among men. And matter of fact, he clearly tells his disciples, I am a king and I am assigning you to be rulers in my kingdom. He says in Luke chapter 22, he said to his disciples, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But he also had to instruct his disciples that the kingdom in which they would reign between his first and second coming would be a spiritual kingdom to begin with. And at its source, it would be a kingdom based in heaven. In Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, he says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. As his disciples gathered around him and recognized him to be the true messianic king and put their trust in him, that was what the kingdom of God looked like. The Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount were meant to be a description of what life in his kingdom would look like. And that's what it is what it looks like. And this is a kingdom that Christ alone could establish. That's what he was about to do by going to the cross. Because at the cross, he defeated our ultimate enemies. At the cross, he paid for our sins completely. And therefore, threw down our accuser. Satan has nothing to accuse us of because Christ paid for our sins completely at the cross. And then he conquered sin and death by being raised from the dead. And after he was raised from the dead, he met with his disciples, which represented the visible form of the kingdom of God. He addressed them as their king, and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Wow, what would Pilate have thought of that claim? All authority, not just on earth, but also in heaven, has been given to me. Now go and spread my kingdom, is really what he said. Which brings me to the third aspect of Christ's reign, which is what kind of power does Christ exert in his kingdom? What does that power look like? 
In verse 36, he says what it doesn't look like in verse 36. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. He says, if I was a king like all the other kings of the earth, then I would have armed my disciples and they would have kept me from being arrested in Gethsemane. Matter of fact, you remember when Peter stepped forward to try to defend him and try to protect him by the power of the sword? Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, Peter, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? He says, my servants, if I was a king like all the kings of this fallen world, not only would I have armed my 12 disciples and all the other disciples, but I would have called upon legions of angels. When he says my servants would be fighting for you, he wasn't only talking about his earthly servants, he's talking about his heavenly servants. He had tens of thousands upon tens upon thousands of angels in heaven to draw upon if he just wanted to establish a physical earthly kingdom. The Apostle Paul said we don't fight with swords for the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul says that our weapons are far more powerful. Our weapons do far more than a sword or a gun, or a tank, or a missile can ever accomplish. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's the warfare we fight. You think your life is insignificant as a Christian? You think you're not making any difference in the world? If you are studying the word of God, if you are sharing the word of God, then you are using the most powerful weapon in the universe to advance the purposes of Christ's kingdom. That's why Jesus says in verse 37, he talks about this weapon. He says, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Do you remember when the apostle John saw the risen Christ, the vision of him in heaven that's described in Revelation chapter 1? You have this glorified, powerful vision of the resurrected Christ standing in heaven And you remember what the last feature of that whole glorious description is? Is that coming out of his mouth was a double-edged sword. And that's the sword that the writer of Hebrews is talking about in chapter 4 when he says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, that's where the biggest battles are won, is in the hearts of sinners. And the word of God has the power to penetrate to the very core of sinners and change them from within. Around the year 1800, there was a banker in London, one of the famous Rothschild family. His first name was Mayor Rothschild. He gave this quote that's been quoted many times ever since. This is his quote. He said, let me issue and control a nation's money And I care not who makes its laws. An interesting comment. In other words, he's saying, as a banker, 
that it's not really the kings or the presidents or the prime ministers or the legislators that really control the nation. They're not the real power in a nation. It's those who print and control the money in a nation. And there's a lot of truth in that. But what's interesting is that he was actually corrupting the original quote, that he's actually modifying that original quote. You've got to go back another hundred years to the Scottish politician and writer, a guy named Andrew Fletcher, and this is what Andrew Fletcher said, which was the original quote. Let me make the songs of a nation, and I care not who makes its laws. Isn't it interesting that a banker thought that he who controls the money of a culture controls that people? But the original quote was, no, let me control the content of what people sing, the hymns, the the anthems of a culture. And I will have more power than any politician or any banker. That's one reason I have always had a deep and keen interest in arts, poetry, literature, music, because that's where the power in a culture is, because that is where the the worldview, the philosophy, the religion of the people is indicated. That's where you see the hearts of the people. And Jesus is saying, I came to bear witness to the truth. As he earlier said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so as we take the word of God into the hearts and lives of sinners, just like we were, we are demolishing strongholds and we are taking thoughts captive for Christ. And we can transform the world by the power of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I think about that often, especially since I've moved to State College. Because we sit on the back doorstep of one of the best universities in the world. A place where people are coming from all over the world to get education so that they can go out and be leaders in government, in law, in, in, in economics, in business, in the educational system. We have the the ability with the the powerful weapon that the Lord has placed in our hands to change individual lives, families, communities, even nations as we keep faithful in our testimony to the word of God. As we keep preaching the gospel. As we change hearts and lives. I mean, think about the power to change hearts and lives through the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the word. There is no more significant work in the world than to do that. Francis Schaeffer used to talk about true truth. That's because we live in a culture increasingly where the concept of truth is meaningless. But Christ has given us the true truth. But you notice how Pilate responds. Jesus is offering him the truth. He's offering him to accept him as his subject so that he can be a part of this eternal kingdom. And Pilate says, what is truth? You think postmodernism is new. (laughs) Tragically, Pilate was not really asking. Yeah, okay, I added a tone of voice when I said, what is truth? I made him sound cynical, but he was cynical. 
No doubt about it. Because he didn't even wait around for an answer. And you know what's even more condemning and and tragic? Is that he left Jesus. He says, what is truth? Didn't wait to hear Jesus answer, give the answer to that question. And he walks back to the Jewish leadership and he says to them, I find no fault in him whatsoever. He's innocent. But as we'll see next week, he still turns them over, turns Jesus over to be crucified according to their will. Why? Because he was a ruler like all the kings of the earth. Because he cared more about his power and his own well-being and he gave the Jews what they wanted to protect his own power. And the sad thing is, only a few years later, the Jews caused him so much trouble and he handled it so badly that the Roman emperor deposed him from his position, called him back to Rome, and on the way, I think he knew it was waiting for him, so he committed suicide. What a tragic choice Pilate makes. Pilate called Jesus before him and and stood in judgment over Jesus. But one day, Pilate's going to stand before Jesus. And Jesus is going to judge him. The confession of the church for 2,000 years has always been, Jesus is Lord. That's our central confession. Confession is that Jesus is Lord. And you realize when you say that, you're not saying Jesus is my religious guru. You're saying Jesus is my king. He is my king. It is him that I serve. I bow a knee to him and to him only. And as we live out that confession, the beautiful thing that happens is that not only as we live according to his word, live under his authority, submit to him as Lord, is that he makes us prosper in all the most important ways of life, even when we suffer in physical ways. And the beautiful thing is, is that the kingdom of God, which is spiritual and which is in many ways invisible as it spreads to the four corners of the earth, it becomes visible among his disciples And what a great calling we have to make the kingdom of God visible through our allegiance and submission to Christ as our Lord and King. Let's pray. Father, we are not prideful as we lament the tragic end of Pilate as he rejected Christ as the true king. Because apart from your grace, we would all have the same response. Father, thank you for opening our eyes to see the glory of Christ. Thank you that when he died on the cross, he died for our sins so that we might stand before you forgiven and even righteous, wearing his righteousness. And Lord, we gladly, joyfully submit to him as our Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would use our witness in a community, in a university campus, where there are so many lies, there's so much darkness, so much depravity, so much enslavement. Lord, I pray that you would continue to equip us and strengthen us and fill us with your spirit, that we might take your word and all of its power to change hearts, lives, and communities for Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.